Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L. On Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome. Happy New Year, everyone. Happy, happy New Year. And this is the Larry Kudlow Show. And I've been off for the week. It's been wonderful. But we will resume the Fox Business uh, Kudlow Show on Tuesday. So that's um, 4 to 5 p.m. every day, Monday through Friday. I want to give that a plug. If you can't get there at 4, text your favorite nine-year-old who will show you how to DVR the show. And here, uh, you can live stream us on the internet. It's LarryKudlowShow.com, LarryKudlowShow.com throughout the country, around the world, and the solar system, and the Milky Way, whatever that may mean. So um, a couple of things I want to say. Let me um, open the show with um, one sad thought. Uh, Pope Benedict uh, has, um, has passed away. He was very sick. Uh, he was um, a great man. He gave up his papacy. Uh, he had been emeritus for the last two years because he'd been very bad health. Um, I want his you know, condolences to his family, condolences uh, to the uh, Vatican. And he was a traditionalist. He was a conservative. He preached conservative church doctrine. He was the right-hand man of Pope uh, John Paul II uh, for many, many years, I guess about 25 years, and succeeded him. Uh, as Pope, he resigned in 2013 because of health reasons, as I said. He finally passed away at age 95. He was a great man, a great intellectual, a great theologian, a great teacher. Uh, Joseph Ratzinger from Germany, I believe he was from Munich, Cardinal of Munich. So let me just say, um, rest in peace. May God watch over him. And that is a loss. Here, coming back at home, uh, there's a lot of things to talk about, some weird stuff going on. Trump's tax returns were released yesterday. There's nothing in it. It's a bloody bore. It sets up a very bad precedent. They're going to look at it. I've seen some early uh, discussions and analysis of it. Um, you know, he abided by the law. He used all the available credits and deductions and LLCs and blah, blah, blah. There's no there there. It's just another Democratic uh, left attempt to embarrass the former president, try to stop him from running for president again. I have no idea. Uh, I'm not picking winners and losers in the primaries. I say let a thousand flowers bloom. But I will say things like this have no impact whatsoever, just going after Trump. And as Kevin Brady, the ranking Republican on the House Ways and Means Committee, has said, the Democrats may come to regret this. Using tax returns as some kind of uh, threat or weapon is a crazy idea. It's a very bad idea. Uh, I hope it doesn't spread, but you never know. But they have nothing on Trump here, nothing uh, at all. The other thing that's spreading around, of course, is this character, uh, Santos, George Santos, who was elected uh, from Long Island. 
Uh, look, I don't, <laughs> I don't want to defend him. Uh, he lied about his resume uh, up and down the line, okay? I don't want to defend any of that stuff. It's very dishonorable. But I will say this, okay? When it comes to lying, okay, when it comes to lying, uh, first of all, President Biden has repeated whoppers, right? He said he was a coal miner. He wasn't. He said he was arrested for civil rights demonstrations with Nelson Mandela in South Africa. It never happened. He said he was a truck driver. He wasn't. He said he was first in his law school. He wasn't. He said he accepted. He was accepted admissions to West Point Military Academy. He did not. There's nothing. I mean, talk about lies and your resume. All right. Again, I don't want to defend Santos. I think what he's done is. Uh, dishonorable, uh, talking about Baruch College, talking about working at uh, what City City Bank, uh, City Group, and Goldman Sachs, things like that. But you know, when it comes to like, how about Senator Warren, who told us for many years she was really a Native American? Trump used to call her Pocahontas. She <laughs> proved out she was not a Native American, or let's put it this way, tests showed that she was such a tiny particle of Native American that tens of millions of Americans would have been Native Americans. So there's just lies every place here, all right? They're all whoppers. It's all bad. I don't want to defend it. I'm just saying you want to point the finger and go after him, fine. But the fact is you could start with Biden and go down the line. Uh, in Connecticut, uh, Richard Blumenthal, Senator Blumenthal, who was just reelected handily, unfortunately, he said he went to Vietnam. That turns out to be a lie. More recently in this campaign, he addressed the Connecticut Communist Party. He denied it. That turned out to be a lie. He did, in fact, talk to them. I mean, come on. All, people lie left and right. I don't like it one bit. I don't see any reason why anybody has to lie. I guess you could go back to Pope Benedict, okay, and his teachings in the church. How about the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not lie? I don't want to defend it. I'm just saying if people want to be self-righteous and holier than thou, you know, let's look at the record of all these other politicians and let's begin with President Biden himself, who has told so many whoppers. Let's look at Janet Yellen and Biden and Jay Powell, who told us there was no inflation and then it was transitory. It turned out we had the highest inflation rate near 10% in 40 years. A lie, okay, a flat-out lie. Now, that may be a different kind of lie. You could call it a substantive lie, but I don't know. I remember Joe Biden getting elected, uh, telling us that the shelves were bare, that there were no uh, COVID vaccines when he took office in uh, early 2021. It was a flat-out lie. Operation Warp Speed from one of President Trump's greatest achievements. And in fact, both Biden and his wife were vaccinated before the inauguration, okay? So if there were no vaccines on the shelves, how come they got vaccinated? Another lie. I could go on. Um, again, I do not want to uh, excuse Santos. I think he's entirely dishonorable here, but uh, let's not point the finger. Let me go on to something, perhaps a brighter note, all right, a brighter note. And that is, I think the next person to be nominated in the Republican Party, and presumably the next president, has to have an economic growth vision, a prosperity vision. Right now, that is completely lacking 
from anybody on either side of the aisle. I mean, here are the Republicans, particularly in the Senate, supporting this uh, crazy $1.7 trillion omnibus spending bill, which also has nearly $100 billion in tax hikes. Uh, that's not growth. The Bidens don't care about growth. They never use the word growth. They seldom use the word prosperity. Uh, they're $4 trillion plus in spending and debt uh, is anti-growth. Uh, they are central planners. They are socialists. Uh, they are tax the richers. They are income, in income equality. There's no growth vision. There's no Ronald Reagan growth vision. And let's go back, all right, four decades when Reagan worked with Paul Volcker to slay the uh, double-digit inflation rate. Volcker raised the Fed's target rates and slayed the money supply, okay, and boosted the value of the dollar. And after a tough year or so, year and a half, conquered inflation. But at the same time he was doing this, Reagan slashed discretionary spending. He increased defense, but he cut discretion non-defense domestic spending. I'm not talking Social Security here. I'm just saying all these other accounts that are really not essential, Reagan slashed them. Reagan slashed marginal tax rates. He deregulated energy and a number of other sectors, and he gave Volcker his wholehearted support to conquer inflation. In other words, Reagan boosted the supply side of the economy, the production of goods and services. Reagan created incentives to work, invest, take risks, start new businesses, and it paid off with an economy that grew by nearly 5% for the next seven years after the initial recession. Now, I will give former President Donald Trump credit for his tax cuts that were passed in late 2017 and pre-pandemic in 2018 and 2019 worked miracles. Actually, although they've been clipped away in a couple of places, the bulk of the Trump corporate tax cuts are still in place. Not all, but most of them. I think it's the only real growth factor in the economy. Um, of course, Trump is for energy independence. As I said, Reagan deregulated oil. It fell from over $40 a barrel in those days, uh, nominal terms, to $10 a barrel a few years later. That's the kind of growth policies we need. That's the kind of prosperity policies we need. The middle class has been slaughtered by the Biden inflation. Real wages, real incomes, real family incomes uh, have fallen 19 consecutive months. The stock market, of course, has come down. You can say that's a rich person's game, but it's much more than that. 125 million people are in the stock market. Middle income people, uh, IRAs and 401ks and various retirement plans, they've been damaged enormously. Uh, by the Biden inflation. So my point is a simple point. We need to restore economic growth, economic prosperity policies. Namely, we need to cut back sharply on bloated budget spending. We need to keep tax rates low, go to a low tax rate, flat tax, or at the very minimum, make the Trump tax cuts permanent. They begin to expire. 
uh, January 1st, in just a couple days, uh, they begin to expire. That's not good. We need to open oil and gas spigots. Uh, oil prices have come down. Gas prices have come down. That's a good thing. But unfortunately, it was done mostly uh, by wasting our strategic petroleum reserve. Uh, we've seen a decline in actual production of barrels per day. I mean, we're still under 12 million barrels a day. We should be close to 14 or 15 million barrels a day. The peak was 13 million plus pre-COVID uh, during the Trump years. Open the oil and gas spigots that affects every aspect. It permeates every aspect of American economic life. Those are things that we need to do to restore 4 or 5% economic growth over the long term. The Bidens and Janet Yellen and the whole gang never taught. They're content with 1% growth or less than 2% growth. They never talk the language of prosperity. The great Art Laffer, uh, Presidential Medal uh, winner, will be on at the half hour to talk much more about why this country needs growth why growth is the key, why being stewards of prosperity should be the GOP House rallying cry and should be the GOP primaries rallying cry uh, as the uh, you know next round of elections approach. I can't begin to emphasize how important this is. I, I think American spirits have been demoralized. We are substituting welfare for work. We are degrading the dignity of work. That cuts into the very fabric and soul of the American idea and the American ideal. We have got to change all this. We don't need central planners who are using the Green New Deal and climate change to run the entire economy into the ground. We don't need all these crazy ideas to end fossil fuels. We don't need to sit around taxing successful earners. We need to reward success, not punish it. These are old themes of mine. I'm not breaking any new ground here. I'm just saying, as my own New Year thought, we need to restore a prosperity agenda. It is the single most important thing we should do. And we need to emphasize the value and dignity of work. You cannot have an economy run by central planners, big government socialists. You cannot have a successful economy with the animal spirits roaring if you're going to pay government benefits and not require work, if you're going to tax success, if you're going to wage a regulatory war on business, if you're going to wage a war against fossil fuels. We are in the wrong track. You know, this year, which is now ending, so far... We know for the first three quarters of the year, the inflation rate was 7.5% and the growth rate was just about zero, 0.3%. Biden inherited the strong Trump economy post-COVID, 6.5% in the first quarter, for heaven's sakes. He inherited that from Trump. But here, Biden's first full year, 2022, we've had no growth and high inflation and high interest rates and plunging stock prices. I don't want to be overly pessimistic. I'm just being realistic. Those are factoids. What I'm saying is we need to get out of this malaise. We need to get out of this slump. And we can do it. 
We could borrow the best from Reagan and Trump. We could borrow the best from JFK's tax cuts, the Democrat, and Reagan and Trump. doesn't have to be uh, partisan, although it has been in recent years. But this is the greatest challenge. We should have border security, which is part of the prosperity agenda. We must have border security. We must have a new reformed legal immigration process. America was built on immigrants. I'm all for it. But you've got to stop what's going on at the border. The border should be sealed. That is absolutely crucial. And um, we must recognize peace through military and defense strength, peace through strength, but not by spending every year more and more necessarily. We can do it by producing more and giving more resources from the economy, from a healthy, vibrant private sector. That's where the resources come from, not simply government spending in a weak economy that creates more debt and more interest expense. I could go on and on, but as I say, Art Laffer's coming on in a few minutes and a half hour. We will talk about the prosperity uh, idea, which has been lost. The Bidens don't care about it. Republicans should. Republicans have been a big disappointment to me. Uh, finishing the year off with, uh, what, 18 or 20 Republican senators actually voting for a big spend, high tax, over-regulate, omnibus bill, crazy stuff. That is wrong. And as you look towards the early election, which you're going to see candidates declaring in 2023, and all that begins to mount up, then you have to look for the prosperity agenda. It is the number one issue. I'm going to take a break. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. We'll be back in a few moments. Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L, on Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. All right, welcome back, folks. Larry Kudlow, Happy New Year to everybody. Thank you for listening on uh, New Year's Eve. You know, I want to uh, cite a very good column by my friend J James Freeman in the uh, Wall Street Journal, uh, Best of the Web. He calls it a Reagan lesson for Biden. And the subheader is, a booming economy is the recipe for re-election. A booming economy is the recipe for re-election. Uh, James Freeman is completely right. Um, Inflation is a tax on the poor. He goes through some of the numbers. The middle class has been killed. Purchasing power from paychecks fell 2.9% for middle-income households in 2022. Fell, fell to almost 3%. The bottom fifth, 1.5% uh, increase. The top uh, fifth, a 1% increase. This is according to a CBO uh, study. Uh, median household income is falling. Uh, the inflation rate is starting to come down. We will talk about that uh, as the show moves ahead. But he writes, four decades ago, Reagan knew that along with encouraging Fed Chairman Paul Volcker to restrain the supply of money, he also needed to give American businesses and workers greater incentives 
to increase the supply of cars, gasoline, and everything else in a vibrant economy. In 1981, Congress enacted Reagan's across-the-board tax cuts. He launched his deregulatory program to unleash the economy with tighter monetary policy recession followed in 82. By the end of that year, despite the media's carping, a tremendous recovery developed. The U.S. economy roared in the first quarter of 1983 on its way to 4.6% real growth per year for the whole year then and for the next seven years. Now, massive federal debt and a non-competitive tax system is already damaging this economy. And there's no evidence that Mr. Biden or Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, or any of his top domestic advisors, there's no evidence that they understand the importance of a prosperous economy. None. And that's got to be a key point. We can do this. We can do this. We might even be able to avoid recession, although that's not likely, but it can be a mild recession. The hope lies with the House Republicans who must set a new prosperity agenda. I believe they will, by the way, and I believe Kevin McCarthy is exactly the right guy to lead it. We'll talk about that later in the show. Congressman French Hill will come on and tell us some what's going on. Uh, Jason Smith, the ranking Republican on the Budget Committee, is going to come on also and tell us about some of the New Year plans. I'm just saying as we look into a new year, let us be optimistic. We know how to solve our problems of economic funk, economic slump, economic malaise. We know how to do that. The question is, will we do it? And the bigger question right now is, can we look to the Republican House to get us off on the right foot? But also, we must look to the Republican candidates who will run for the Senate. I believe let a thousand flowers bloom. Let us have a, you know, a good primary. But most importantly, there must be a prosperity agenda to lift us out of this higher inflation, low growth economic slump. This is not hard. We have done it before. As I said, post-World War II, Democrat John F. Kennedy did it. Republican Ronald Reagan did it. Republican Donald Trump did it. We know how to do this. Let's get moving. Restrain government, limit spending and borrowing, keep tax rates rock bottom. A nice low tax rate, flat tax would do it. Stop the regulatory war against business. Stop the regulatory war against fossil fuels. And by the way, along the way, let's enforce the border. Let's control the border. That's absolutely crucial. And let's realize that we need economic resources and strong growth to give us peace through strength. That was how Reagan upended the Soviet Union. Literally, their system didn't produce the goods. Literally, Reagan's policies produced the goods, and that made America strong, and that made the Soviet Union weak. If we turn the spigots back on, for fossil fuels, we can get oil prices back down to 40 or $50, gasoline prices back down to $2 a gallon, that kind of thing. That will help the middle class. That will help the whole country. And for heaven's sakes, 
let us talk about the dignity and importance of work. Not welfare, but workfare. Those are all the key points that we must do looking to the new year. All right, I, I think we've run out of time. We're going to take a quick break. On the other side of the break, uh, the great Art Laffer will be there. I'm Kudlow. Please stick around. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. Happy New Year, New Year's Eve. I was talking about a prosperity agenda, which is something my dear friend Arthur Laffer has been talking about uh, on the TV show, and actually for the better part of the last 50 years anyway. Art Laffer is chairman and chief economist of Laffer Associates. Uh, he's a recipient of the Presidential Medal of Freedom, and he has a new book out, which is a very important book. It's called Taxes Have Consequences, an Income Tax History of the United States. Art Laffer, thank you. Happy New Year. Love, love, love. Happy New Year, Larry. Love, love, love. Right back at you. <laughs> right. Um, so I was talking about the Laffer idea. We need a uh, prosperity agenda. The GOP in particular has to become stewards of economic prosperity. And the other point you've made, which is equally important, is as we look into these Republican primaries now, uh, the person that's going to win is the person that has a prosperity agenda. Uh, Joe Biden's first full year, 2022, uh, so far the first three quarters of the year, there's been no growth, 0.3 GDP. Uh, with an inflation rate of about 7.5%. And the Bidens don't, they show no signs of wanting a growth uh, a growth agenda. They're more interested in income redistribution and central planning at the federal level. Anyway, Art, what do you think about this whole story? Well, I think you're right. I mean, I think the Biden agenda has not been very good. I mean, it's got all the classic mistakes. They've raised taxes. Uh, they've increased spending. Uh, they've let monetary policy go crazy to inflation. Uh, they've re-regulated the economy. You can look at the ledgers on there and on regulations. It's just increased. And they've been very restrictive on trade, Larry. All five of those are direct assaults on the five pillars of prosperity. And that's what this administration has done. And with, co with Congress being complicit, by the way, and with the Fed being complicit as well, and, you know, we've got to reverse that. I mean, those will have very long-term negative consequences for the country, for our children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. And we need to reestablish economic growth. And, you know, reestablishing will, 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 will result in a very sharp turnaround in prosperity, just the way it did with Reagan. You know, um, our friend James Freeman wrote this up, a good column on his Best of the Web art. It's called A Reagan Lesson for Biden. Uh, and the subhead is a booming economy is the recipe for re-election. What do you think? Pretty good. I love huh? it. I love it. But, you know, I, exactly I wish right. more Republicans believed it. You know, I, I, <laughs> I talk with lots of people all the time and, oh, yeah, we don't hate Democrats, but we hate their policies. Well, no, we're not the hating party, Larry. We should not be the hating party. We're the party of prosperity. We're the party of guardians of, of wealth, income, jobs and low inflation. That's what we are. And if, if you're tall and want to be a big tax cutter, you're in our party. If you're short and you want to tax cut, you're in our party. You know, we need to be exclusively for prosperity and not on all these other silly issues. I, I was just seeing a list of all the investigations the Republicans are planning on doing in the next six months, a year. It's like 15 of them, Larry. That's not how you win. That's not how you even serve humanity. 
Uh, that's just revenge and anger and hatred. We need to be pro-growth, Larry. And I, I do a, a, agree with you on the monitoring and being, uh, you know, oversight. That's very important, but not these going back stuff. It's just wrong. What, um, what should they lead with? I think they should lead with the five pillars of prosperity. Yep. There, there are a couple of, uh, of specific uh, incomes policy policies that we need to do. Uh, decontrol, I mean, by that. Uh, we need price transparency in health care. Hmm. Health care is a huge share of the U.S. economy, something like 20% of it. And there are no prices available. We need to follow Trump's executive order and require all health care providers to provide transparency, what the prices are, how much cash you have to pay for this, that, or the other, what the insurance re uh, reimbursements are, so we all know what's going on so we can make good decisions. We also need to do something for the inner cities, for poverty areas, which is enterprise zones. We need a low brace tax rate for people who live in the enterprise zones and who work in the enterprise zones. We need good border control, not to stop people from coming in this country, but to be in control of who comes in and what pr uh, contributions they will to our society, as well as to their welfare as well. We, we need to be compassionate through prosperity, not through welfare. Didn't hear that message during the campaign much. No, you didn't. You know, not at all. Not at all. Know. And although a couple of the commentators around have all said, "Oh, that's what the Republicans ran on," my foot. The hmm. Republicans ran on hate and anger and revenge. They really did, Larry. We're going to get the uh, you know the audit committee. We're going to get Mayorkas out of there. We're going to investigate the Hunter Biden thing. We're going to investigate the Biden family thing. We're going to invest the origins of of COVID. We're going to investigate Fauci. All these others. That's not where we need to go, Larry. We need to be open-armed and loving. And, you know, if you're a tax cutter, or a spending restrainer, if you're a sound money guy, you're in our party. We want you as our guys. We are the party of inclusion, not the party of exclusion. You know, there's nothing wrong. It's, it's interesting on the border, which is a disaster and needs to be yes, controlled. You're 100% right. Um, but that should only be part of the message. The other part of the message is, we need a good, strong, merit-based, legal immigration yeah. program, right? And I merit mean, is something very interesting. I mean, if you were Mexican today, Larry, living in Cuatro Cienegas or something like that in, in a bathroom in the below the big plaza there, and you and your three kids and family, what would you do to get to America? Virtually anything. These aren't people to be hated. These are people who really want to be part of our system, be part of our – now, they're going to – we have to do it legally. We have to allow them in. But these are not people we want to lock up in jails. Mm. The mother coming in with her two kids, these are people to understand their circumstances and to see how we can make their lives better as well as ours by limiting in, uh, immigration, by letting it be there where it's a benefit to both sides, making sure that drugs aren't brought over, making sure that terrorists don't come in. All of that control needs to be done to make it correct, not to punish people. You know, it's um, we had a pretty decent uh, immigration reform plan in Trump's last year. It never went you anywhere sure did. in Congress. You sure did. But, you know, talk about merit. Uh, Canada has a merit-based system. Australia has a merit-based system. Great Britain has a merit-based A lot of countries have a merit-based system. So putting that in would be a good thing. It would be great reform. Plus, we shouldn't, we shouldn't make... Uh, Legal immigration candidates wait seven years, 10 years, 15 oh, years, you know? No, I mean, we, we should, should grease not. the wheels. This is an area of deregulation that's very important, overlooked. Very much important. so, Larry. You're so right on this. 
And, you know, the other one that I have an issue on, and I, I don't know exactly where all of your thoughts are on this, but free trade. You know, when you trade with countries, you begin to like your customers, you begin to like your suppliers, you begin to like all the people in the process. And we need to become much more understanding of the rest of the world and they of us. And that's why I think free trade is really a critical path to making peace in this world, uh, to making things happen on the right side of things, not on the wrong side. Plus, free trade is one of the greatest forces of prosperity ever. I mean, the U.S. as a trading nation has been since its inception, and it's really led us to be prosperous. And we I'm really for... need to re And Trump was very good on this as well, by the way. I you mean, know, just we had a lot record, of good. Trump was great. We had a lot of free trade deals uh, overlooked. Yes, you did, and they were good ones. And, and Trump personally, uh, uh, from conversations I had with him, and I'm sure you had with him, he's a free trader. He used the trade as a negotiating ploy, that's for sure. Right. But he did it to get best free trade. Even you told me the story, I think, Larry, about what happened in Ottawa before he went to meet with Kim Jong Un. You know, at the G7 meeting there, and he had to leave early. And he sat there and said to the six people he was there, "Excuse me for leaving because I have to meet with Kim Jong Un, but I am prepared to get rid of all U.S. tariffs and all U.S. non-tariff barriers if you six people will agree to it as well." Yes. And that- it was just they looked at their shoes, whistling. Oh well, I don't know. Trump was very understanding of free trade. He looked at me in that. Actually, there was a meeting with Justin Trudeau, a bilateral meeting, when he said that. I had written an op-ed piece uh, in, I don't know, the Journal or Washington Post someplace saying exactly that, that that Trump actually was a free trader. Uh, He wanted end tariffs, non-tariff barriers and subsidies. But the sticking point, and he said this, he said, you guys, it has to be reciprocal. We have to do this together. We have to bring down tariff rates together. Uh, yep. So, so you're right. His heart was in the right place. We had deals with Japan. We had deals with South Korea. Uh, USMCA wasn't perfect. wasn't a bad deal. Um, the Europeans don't want reciprocity, Art, and the Chinese are very difficult. Well, the you know, I Chinese think Trump could have gotten difficult. it from, from, for sure, China. He had a good relationship with Xi. Yeah. And, you know, good relationships go a long way in preventing war, Larry. They go a long way in furthering prosperity. They really do. And I thought Trump had a very good relationship with Xi. And I think if he'd have stayed in office, we could have found ourselves in a lot more free trade without the hostilities and belligerence that's coming out of Xi right now. You know, the dopes in England, I mean, we should be negotiating a U.S.-U.K. free trade deal. That was what we all thought was going to happen. Now, maybe it would have happened in a second term. The Tory party is not in a good, uh, good shape right now. But there's an example of something we could be putting on. The Bidens don't have any interest in it. But the fact is, why not? UK, US, free trade deal. Well, you remember when, uh, when Britain voted for pre- Brexit, which is their right. Yep. I mean, they're British. They, they, they can vote for Brexit. And Biden, uh, and not Biden, and Obama said, if you do that, you're last in line. Mm. That's I mean, you know, right. th- th- we tried to interfere with their elections on Brexit and all of that and, and, and said all the wrong things. We mm. should have done a trade deal with, with Britain right away. All right. All right. Stay with us. Hang on. i got to take a quick break. want to come back and sure. continue this conversation and maybe talk about the economic outlook for the new year. Folks, we're talking to the great Art Laffer. Listen to what he says. He's been advising presidents for decades and decades. I'm his acolyte. My name's Cudlow. We'll be right back with Laffer. 
With crime running rampant in New York, you need to keep yourself and your family safe. Obtaining your concealed carry firearm licenses can be difficult and time-consuming. That's where MyFirstPistol.com comes in. They'll help you secure your concealed carry license. If you're looking for a pistol, premise, rifle, or shotgun license, call 347-559-7052. 347-559-7052. You must have a valid firearm license issued by the NYPD to purchase, possess, or shoot a handgun or pistol in NYPD. I see. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. I'm here with the great Arthur Laffer. Dr. Arthur Laffer is chairman and chief economist of Laffer Associates. He is a Presidential Medal of Freedom recipient. His newest book is called Taxes Have Consequences, an income tax history of the United States. This is the same Art Laffer of the Laffer Curve, the father of supply-side economics. Art, what is, you know, what are you thinking for the new year? What's um, what's the economy going to look like, do you think? Well, I don't really see any policy reversals on anything. I do see a Republican House maybe being a little bit more strong on controlling spending uh, going forward. But, uh, you know, a lot of these Republicans, Larry, have abandoned ship and voted for these big spending bills. I mean, it's just amazing to me. But uh, I think we've got a rough year ahead of us. Not a terribly rough, but, you know, until policies change, I don't see the economy responding and coming back strong. I just don't. Yeah. Um, so I think we're in a long period of secular decline, not in a deep recession sense, but very low growth rates for the next couple of years until those policies reverse themselves. What do you think on the inflation front? Well, we're going to have low inflation for about the next six months because of just the technical aspects of measuring inflation. The headline uh, a consumer price index is going to be lower because the numbers dropping off the index for the next six months are going to be very high numbers. Therefore, bringing that number down, maybe down from seven, where is it now? Seven, seven and a half percent down to maybe four, four and a half percent, three in that range. Uh, but then it's all bets are off. Uh, we have to watch these monthly numbers to see how that's going to change. But I don't see anything that has told me that the Fed and uh, Congress and the administration have got the inflation under control. They just don't, Larry. Can an economy survive? I mean, this is a serious question. Can an economy survive, let's say, with a 3 to 5% inflation rate over time? Not really. I mean, 3 to 5 inflation is a very high rate of inflation. Mm. That means you have to build in all sorts of expectations on prices, as well as interest rates, as well as all sorts of factors in there and it's just really not it's not a tenable long-term solution to inflation you need to be a very low one uh and i would say less than two percent uh you know we had inflation coming in from the late 70s to the early 80s and if you'll remember larry i mean uh, the bank prime got up to 21 and a half percent mortgage rates were 17 18 percent it was hell on wheels And, you know, unless we do something now, and by the way, there were large swings in the rate of inflation in those years as well. If if we don't do something now, that's going to come back to haunt us. You know, one thing, I I hope the House, uh, I'm going to talk to a couple of House senior policymakers later in the show. Um, They've got to figure out a way to reopen the fossil fuel spigots. They sure do. You know, I mean, you get oil prices down 40 to 50, say 40 to 50 dollars a barrel. The oil companies can make money on that, but that will have a positive impact throughout the economy. I mean, you know, fossil fuels, 
refined petroleum products affect everything, everything we do, including the clothes we wear, you know, hospital, emergency rooms, stethoscopes. There's a million eyeglasses. I mean, there's a million things. People forget about that. Yeah, they do. I mean, it's a huge sector of the economy. Uh, when I mentioned uh, uh, medical transparency and, and enterprise zones, I should have mentioned energy as well. Those are the three specific industry policies that we need to free very, very quickly. We need to get medical transparency. We need to have get, do just what Reagan did. He got rid of the wellhead price controls. He got rid of the excess profits taxes. He got rid of the retail price controls and oil, and plus 10 other things in there. And the price of oil, Larry, if you'll remember, in I think it was 1984, after doing all of this right away, the price of oil went from $32 a barrel down to $8 a barrel. Mm. And it really launched us into prosperity back then. I mean, it was really helpful. We need that again as well. You're so right to stress energy policy and decontrol and the, and, and the pipelines and all of that needs to be done. How much growth did Reagan produce? You, you had the terrible recession. Everyone was doom and gloom. This, uh, this uh, James Freeman writes about this is very good. Uh, how much growth did Reagan have coming out of the re the recession? Was like a long one. It's like seventy nine, eighty two, really. Yeah, uh, and he, you know, my view on the recession is that he, because he delayed the tax cuts, as right. you know. I don't think it was monetary policy, but most people do. But I'm not going to argue that point here. But from January first, nineteen eighty three, to June thirtieth, nineteen eighty four. Now, that's, a, that's an 18-month period, Larry, 18-month uh, period. In that period, the U.S. economy grew in real terms by 12%. 12%. We grew at an annual compound rate of 8% per annum in real terms for a year and a half. Hmm. That changed the whole context of the world. It, it's just to me, you can do that again. These guys have screwed things up so badly. That really very simple, look, picking low-hanging fruit like you say in energy and these other areas, if you did that now, you could get growth rates of 7 8% if we did it quickly and did it right. We could just get this rocket ship going. Now, even if we did it gradually, we can get growth rates of 5% for the next four or five years if we could put those policies in, into effect. I mean, monetary policy, just think of what uh, making the dollar as good as gold would do. Mm. Uh, if you guaranteed no inflation for the next 10 years, I mean, it would be an incredibly prosperous period. How about taxes that would reward success rather than punish? There you the go. Bi the Bidens want to punish <laughs> success, okay? They, they, I mean, they're going after right now. They release Trump's tax returns, and it's it's such a non-starter. There's nothing there. The, the guy used... Well, you know, he used all the real estate breaks, credits, deductions, and, of so, forth and so on. Everyone but, does who's but there. What, yeah, right. It's all legal. Uh, why not reward success rather than punish it? Yeah, why not make a tax code that doesn't have all those? And the one I did for Jerry Brown was a low-rate, broad-based flat tax. We got rid of all the tax deductions, exclusions, et cetera, and the income tax from the first dollar to the last dollar. No deductions, exclusions, exemptions, omissions, none of that. A 13% flat tax rate on your first dollar and your last dollar. Hmm. You, can you imagine what that would do for the economy? I mean, we'd rocket ship through. We'd be selling goods into central China. Hmm. I mean, it's just what we need, and it needs to be done all the way across the board. You not only lower rates, but you get rid of deductions, exemptions, exclusions, omissions, and everyone pays his or her fair share. If you make twice as much as I do, Larry, 
which you probably make a lot more than that. <laughs> but uh, if you make that, you should pay twice as much more than I do. At the a same tax rate. is the right way to go, and it should have no deductions, exemptions, or exclusions right. or omissions. At the, same, at the same tax rate, the most successful would pay far more. The top yeah, 1%, the top 5 the top 20% would pay vastly more. That's what, that's what happened during the Reagan years. Yeah, and if you, if you saw those illegal uh, releases from ProPublica, Pro every yeah. one of the rich people take all the exemptions. But they can. It's perfectly legal. Warren right. Buffett in 2010 said he made about $40 million in taxable income when, in fact, his wealth increased by, by $10 billion. And he gave away $2.5 billion. You know, if we had a low-rate, broad-based, flat tax with none of these exemptions, he would have paid $1.5 billion, and he'd have been richer, and we'd have been richer. Happy New Year, Arthur Laffer. We love you. Happy New Year. It's a great message. Folks, we'll be back on the other side of the break with John Bolton, former ambassador. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Happy New Year to everybody. I don't mind broadcasting New Year's Eve. What the heck? A lot to talk about. Anyway, our next guest, Ambassador John Bolton, former U.S. National Security Advisor, former Ambassador to the United Nations, currently Chairman of the Foundation for American Security and Freedom, and his book, his late book, latest book, The Room Where It Happened, a White House memoir, Anyway, uh, John Bolton, welcome. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Glad to be with you. Good boy. So, John, um, I guess I'm going to have to embarrass you by talking about this really great New York Sun op-ed piece, which has gone throughout the Internet, uh, The Right Role for Bolton. The Right Role for Bolton. It's not an endorsement for president, but they'd like to see you run for president and restore foreign policy as a topic of debate in the Republican primaries, I know you're a longtime believer in tough defense spending, peace through strength. I was your colleague in the White House. Um, I think you've got some good supply side tax cutting blood uh, in, with you, inside you. And I also think, John, and I want to talk about this for a second, you know, boosting the defense budget. One of the best ways to do that is to grow the economy with the right incentives. Economic growth throws off a lot of budget revenues that can then be put into the defense budget. That was the Reagan model. Correct me if you think I'm wrong, but I think that's the kind of thing you could inject if you throw your hat into the ring. What do you think, John Bolton? No, I think that's right. Look, you, you, a strong American position in the world, I think, is critical to maintaining the kind of economy we want at home. And, and the other side of that coin is you cannot maintain a strong position internationally without a strong economy. So the two, to me, go absolutely together. What, what I've been concerned about for a number of years, and I'm especially concerned about it as we look toward 2024, is uh, a, a lot of talk about uh, domestic issues that get political attention but are really not critical to the security of the country. And I think we face a number of threats around the world that really uh, could make 2024 more, more like an election from Cold War days than uh, from, from the days since the uh, Soviet Union collapsed. I mean, starting with a war in Ukraine that's now uh, been going on for almost a full year. So it's a it's a question, I think, for American politicians uh, and for the people in an election cycle to say we want to hear more about 
what your views are on the threats the United States faces around the world. Yeah, I mean, what's your assessment of America's role in the world, America's standing in the world? Well, I think at the moment we're seen as being uh, uh, adrift and not paying enough attention. And I think uh, if you look at, uh, uh, at at the threats that are that are emerging, I mean, take China's one. I think uh, we've we've come to the realization uh, somewhat late about the the extent of the Chinese threat. It really covers all of society, economic, political, as well as military. Uh, but countries uh, near China are doing amazing things because they're very worried about what's going on just a couple of weeks ago the prime minister uh, of japan announced that they would more than double their defense budget in five years to get up to the two percent of gdp nato target and making japan and listen to this making japan the third largest military in the world uh, after the united states and china so there's a lot going on here and i, I just think politicians, uh, especially those who have isolationist tendencies, don't want to talk about these threats. But I think it's it's important for the citizens as voters to hear what the threats are, and then they'll decide what they want to do. Is Joe Biden intimidated by Putin and Xi? Is he intimidated? Is he afraid to really put his best foot forward or America's best foot forward? Well, I think he is. I think uh, the Ukraine war is a good example. Uh, uh, U.S. policy, I think, uh, throughout has been a day late and a dollar short. Uh, It has not rallied the NATO alliance, despite a lot of patting ourselves on the back. We still don't have Germany or France contributing adequately to the effort. Uh, And I think Putin's constant uh, bluffing about using nuclear weapons Uh, And the threat of a larger war has deterred Biden from really doing what we should have been doing. We we were we failed at the beginning of this by not deterring Putin, but he's been able to deter uh, Biden in significant ways. I think China's a a little bit different. I think this is this is a uh, self-induced hesitancy on Biden's part, because from the beginning, he and John Kerry, his global climate envoy, have said that. Climate change agreements with China are the top priority. Hmm. Uh, they're going to be walled off from everything else, uh, but but we're going to make we're going to make progress there, which is which is giving the issue away to China and and raising the price of agreement on everything else. We've been very timid in dealing with China for fear of jeopardizing a climate agreement that the Chinese would never adhere to anyway. Right. I mean, they're, they're building coal plants left and right. There's no climate change policy in China that I can see. And it's that's a sideshow, John. I mean, you know, Chinese trade practices, China on COVID, China on Taiwan, uh, China on North Korea. Those are key issues, it seems to me. Global warming is not a key issue in China. Well, it certainly is not, and yet that's that, that is the dominant issue for the Biden administration, and I think does explain a lot of passivity. If you're if you're being driven by a desire to get some kind of uh, climate change agreement from China, everything else is going to play second fiddle, and I think we're paying the consequences for that. We're talking with uh, Ambassador John Bolton, former National Security Advisor. John, what about the domestic economy? I mean. In this Sun article, it it says, it reports, Mr. Bolton describes his own platform as fairly standard Republican fare, 
with a libertarian edge, cut taxes, reduce regulations, get the government off the back of the people, and let the economy grow. Now, John, that's fairly standard for us Reagan guys, all right, and Trump guys, too, to some extent. But the Republican Party doesn't always talk about that. I mean, you know, what, 18 or 20 Republican senators voting for omnibus. In other words, I'm saying uh, a supply-sider in the race would be a very good thing. I know your expertise is foreign policy, and we look to you for that. But I wouldn't downgrade just putting that stuff out, what you call fairly fairly standard Republican fair. I don't know that the Republicans know that that's fairly standard Republican <laughs> fair. Well, that's, that's, my a, that's, a, that's a good point. No, that, no question about it. We've, we've got a lot of, uh, of sort of emerging social Democrats in the Republican Party yes. for reasons I don't fully understand. And a lot of people who honestly for whom the concept of fiscal responsibility is, uh, is, is alien to their nature. But, you know, when you have the, the share of total GNP that the government is taking expanding year after year, uh, you're, you're crowding out the, the private sector. You're not enhancing growth. We, we've got an entire rhetoric by Democrats and liberals about government expenditures investments. We're investing in this and investing in that, when all they're really doing is simply transferring uh, income from one group to another or engaging in programs that don't contribute to economic growth. I think your point has always been, and I remember from discussions in the White House, the more economic growth you have, the more you're free to do other things with it. But if you're yes. not promoting growth, you're only talking about redistributing scarcity. I think it's a winner for Republicans to stress economic growth. I know that's been your view, and I, I think in 2024 it could make a big difference. Uh, John, are you worried about isolationist strains in the Republican Party? Uh, I am. I think, you know, there have always been traces of them. I think we're seeing more of it now. In fact, I've written a pretty long piece for National Review. I hope will be coming out soon to try and address that. Uh, again, if you if you look at Reagan's success and ultimately uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union, which was due to his and then following in the George H.W. Bush administration, putting pressure on the Russians economically to the point where they couldn't compete and ultimately collapsed, uh, that's what makes us safer. Uh, you know, it's not American strength that's provocative in the world. It's American weakness that's provocative. Uh, and the peace through strength approach Reagan had uh, has ample precedent in history and I think proved to be a winner in the Cold War. I think it can do it in this uh, confrontation we're seeing now with China, too. Should we stay the course with Ukraine? Because I, I hear whispers, you know, in the Republican House uh, leadership and elsewhere that um, that we're losing our appetite for defending Ukraine with uh, weaponry and financial assistance. Should we stay the course, John? No, absolutely. I mean, this is this is having a devastating effect on the uh, on the Russian military, among other things. Uh, Defense Secretary Austin said seven or eight months ago now, I think that what the Russians are doing is feeding their army into a wood chipper. Mm. Uh, we, we've had excellent battlefield testing, key key military systems. Now, what this war has revealed is how small our arsenals of things like javelin anti-tank weapons are. Uh, in trying to get aid to Ukraine and trying to get aid to Taiwan, uh, we're facing huge delays because of our inadequate uh, supply chain in this country. Our manufacturing lines have gone cold. So I think, again, a, a key issue here and a, a potential boost for 
uh, American industry, making it clear we need uh, not just uh, just-in-time delivery of weapons, we need resilience. We need mm-hmm. the capacity to have that stuff stockpiled so we can either use it with allies or use it ourselves. John Bolton, when are you going to make a decision whether or not to run? Well, you know, it's. I think the timetable in the Republican Party race has slowed down a little bit. Uh, President Trump obviously declared his candidacy on November 15th, but for the last six weeks, there hasn't been any evidence of that candidacy. Very, very hard to understand, I think, but I think it's slowed down uh, a lot of uh, other people who are looking at this race, slowed down their announcement for some period of time. So I think it's very important to do this seriously. You know, I did look at running in 2016 and and went went through a lot of careful analysis before deciding not to go it's not a frivolous decision to make so i think it's important to take adequate time and and look at the environment all right john bolton um whatever you decide to do keep the pressure on for good policies we need you out there and happy new year to you buddy happy new year Larry. take care all right take care thanks folks we're going to take a quick break other side of the break congressman french hill is going to give us his thoughts on the Republican leadership. Uh, Can Kevin McCarthy get the votes on January 3rd? That's Tuesday, folks, to become Speaker of the new Republican House. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We bring in my dear friend, Congressman French Hill, Republican from Arkansas. We're going to talk about Kevin McCarthy. First of all, French, Happy New Year to you and Martha. Larry, Happy New Year to you and Judy. It's great to hear your voice and great to be with you today. Yeah, thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. So um, you're a McCarthy supporter. I'm a Kevin McCarthy supporter. Uh, What's the outlook? The vote is Tuesday. (laughs) What do you think is going to happen here? Well, he had some momentum here in the last few hours. Morgan Griffith, who's a fine uh, senior member of the Freedom Caucus from Virginia, Morgan announced he was supporting Kevin Mm. in the last few hours. I think that's a really good move. He's an extraordinarily respected constitutionalist in the the House and a real Jefferson scholar, so he's respected by his colleagues. Look, Larry, for four decades, you know, I've worked with leaders. I've been a leader in the public sector and the private sector. Leadership takes vision. It takes the financial resources to carry out that vision. It takes recruiting a team and identifying winners. And that's what Kevin McCarthy has done tirelessly with his colleagues in the House. He's recruited candidates. He's financed their campaigns. And he's delivered uh, a legislative vision and planning vision for the next two years with a mission of what? Unifying Republicans and conservatives across the country to take back the direction of our country away from the failed policies of Joe Biden. And I think, look, that's what we ought to be focused on as conservatives. That's what we ought to be focused on in the party is leading on a pro-growth, pro-market agenda Hmm. to make our country better and take it back from these failed Biden policies. Well, I mean, people forget, uh, even though the House is a close margin, but you with McCarthy and the leadership, you have won the last two cycles. I think it was, uh, what, plus 14 or 15 in the 2020 cycle while Trump lost. And then what, is it plus, how many, plus nine in this one? I don't, I don't. Yeah. Uh, and so you picked exactly up about right. 25 seats in round numbers. And our, candidate, 
our candidates won uh, in 2020 overwhelmingly across the country in all districts in swing states and non-swing states because they had the message and they had the financing and the vision. And I think a lot of that is credited to Kevin McCarthy and his leadership. Um, French, what's the deal? This um, I've talked to Kevin a bunch of times on the TV and so forth. Uh, what's the deal on this vacate the chair? One yeah. uh, demand by Biggs, I guess, uh, one person can call for a vote to vacate the chair, which I think is crazy. You, you can't run the place that way. Kevin um, was on TV yesterday. He said he's going to open up rules. He said, um, he, well, I've read reports that he's considering uh, maybe lowering the bar, but you can't have one or five. I mean, you can't run the place that way. Yeah, I agree. This is a, a longstanding House rule dating back to the earliest days of the Republic where a member could make a motion uh, that was uh, able to come to the floor to vacate the chair. And look, in modern the modern era, both political parties elect their leadership in a private conference, and then they expect that leader to govern. And therefore, our members in the, in the most recent Congress, Larry, have seen a change in leadership by secret ballot in our own conference, uh, Liz Cheney. And when I was a freshman in Congress, John Boehner realized he didn't have the confidence of a majority of Republicans in the conference, and he announced a retirement date as speaker, and we elected Paul Ryan speaker by electing him first as the leader of the Republicans in the House. So I don't support uh, this low bar vacate the chair motion when we already have inside our own party rules the ability to, uh, in my view, change our leaders and then elect that new leader as Speaker of the House if that's something that the majority of, of Republicans wanted to do. Well, what do you think? How's this going to wind up? Do you think he's going to change the bar? Well, uh, if he does, I, I hope he makes it in a way where it doesn't empower Democrats. Because that's what a motion to vacate does, Larry. You're allowed the Democratic Party to call a motion uh, to vacate the chair. And so anything in the House rules, as opposed to the Republican conference rules, with a narrow majority like we have, I think empowers the minority party, the Democratic Party. And I don't think conservatives and Republicans are into empowering Democrats anymore. We've already got that problem in spades. <laughs> you have that problem in the Senate. But that's a different exactly. segment. It's a different subject. Um, so, French Hill, you were a White House policy advisor and a Treasury policy advisor, and now you're in the Congress. First of all, what are you going to um, you going to run a subcommittee, or how's this going to work? You're in that in the Financial Services Committee overall. What what's your what what what's your jurisdiction going to be? Well, we're still uh, discussing that ultimate jurisdiction here in the first of the year, but I will be a subcommittee chairman and House Financial Services Committee. We want to take the committee back to developing a pro-growth agenda for our capital markets, get away from this uh, woke uh, corporatism that Gary Gensler, the chairman of the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, although under his leadership I call it the Securities and Environment Commission. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to move away from this woke uh, environmental social governance agenda of, of Gary's and move back to a pro-growth, pro-ownership uh, opportunity for building wealth for all of our citizens. We're also going to hold the Biden administration's regulators, both the banking regulators, the securities regulators, uh, accountable. And then we want to counter China's influence in the multilateral banks. I've talked to your good friend, uh, David Malpass, who's our current leader, the president of the World Bank, 
I worked uh, some with Ambassador Greenfield of the United Nations in the last session. And we need to make sure that we counter China's influence in the multilateral. That's something in the jurisdiction of the committee and something that we're going to tackle. You know, um, what's her name? Uh, Hester Peirce from the SEC. Yes. She called it the Securities and Everything Commission. That's <laughs> 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 I, I pretty good for a sitting. You know, she's she's a commissioner. Um, what's the caucus going to do? What's the Republican conference going to do? What's the lead uh, topics going to be? You bet. Well, Steve Scalise is going to be elected uh, or has been elected our majority leader. He'll start that service on Tuesday at noon. And he's got a robust agenda for the first two weeks, focusing on things that I heard about all during the campaign. First, do we really need 87,000 new IRS in the Inflation Reduction Act? So he's going to move to rescind that spending. That'll be one of the first bills that comes to the House floor. Uh, We are going to set up a select committee, bipartisan, led by Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin, to explain to think through a strategy to deal with this pivot of the Chinese Communist Party and how their leadership of China is going to attempt to really challenge the international market system. We're going to uh, have a bill to prohibit non-emergency drawdowns of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. This is a terrible policy of the Biden administration uh, to draw down uh, oil reserves uh, down to a 1984 level, all of which have just really frankly benefited Uh, China, since they've been a large buyer of it, and it has really not impacted global prices. And then we're going to focus on crime and the border. So we've got a robust agenda for the next few days. All right, French Hill, thank you for this. Happy New Year to you and Martha. We will talk soon. Appreciate you coming on. Thanks so much. Happy New Year. You bet. We'll take a uh, quick break, and on the other side of the break, we're going to talk to Steve Malloy why we cannot end fossil fuels. It just ain't going to work. I'm Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks, and Happy New Year. How about this? How about net zero carbon emissions? How about the Green New Deal destroying our grid? How about no electricity? How about California? No more gasoline-powered cars. The trouble is, and you your electric vehicles now, you can't plug them in because there's no electricity. Why there's no electricity? Because there's not enough natural gas. Why is there not enough natural gas? Because Governor Gavin Newsom is banning natural gas. There you go. Net zero. The Green New Deal. Let's bring in my pal Steve Malloy, Senior Fellow, Energy and Environmental Legal Institute. Uh, served on the Trump transition for EPA. Uh, first of all, Happy New Year, Steve. Hey, Happy New Year, Larry. Thanks for having me. So good, good uh, Wall Street Journal article this past week. Um, net zero, the energy transition, going to destroy the electricity grid. What a great idea! Terrific <laughs> stuff. You know, yeah. let's let's just t- rip this whole thing apart. And and by the way, you're seeing it with all this bad weather. You know, cold and snow. What a terrific thing this is. Yes, for sure. So net zero is the hottest thing in uh, global warming circles today. Every corporation is moving towards it. The SEC is poised to issue a climate disclosure rule uh, to help investors, you know, find out how companies are performing on net zero. And what most people don't know is the whole net zero thing is basically at, at, at this point now should be considered a hoax. Uh, <laughs> earlier, earlier this year, a couple months ago, 
the Electric Power Research Institute, which is the uh, research arm of the electric utility industry in the U.S., came out with a report about net zero. And this is a report that, for some reason, was not reported at all in the media. But I found out about it, and the report concludes that net zero is not possible through technology. There's no combination of wind turbines, solar panels, nuclear plants, hydropower, batteries, energy efficiency uh, that is going to get anyone to net zero. And, you know, the problem is that we have all these companies uh, telling investors, you know, we've got plans to get net to net zero, but the utility industry itself, at least internally, knows that it's impossible. What is this? I mean, you're writing here, in other words, no amount of wind turbines, solar panels, hydropower, nuclear power, battery power, electrification of fossil fuel technologies or energy efficiency technologies will get us to net zero by 2050. First of all, what's net zero? Well, net zero would be a situation where we could still emit, you could still burn fossil fuels, but then we would, uh, those, those emissions would be captured so that there would be no net emissions. Oh, okay. And, yeah, so, and, but, and most people think of this as really zero emissions, but it could be some emissions with capturing emissions and then, you know, either sucking them out of the air or capturing when they're made and storing them on the ground. But this whole idea, net zero, which we hear about from all the Bidens, from Joe Biden to John Kerry, I mean, what is this going to do to the supply of electricity and power? What's this going to do to the economy? How, do you, how are you going to run an economy? If you know that you don't have, you know, wind farms and solar and so forth, it's not going to do the job. I think still today it's only, what, 3 4 5% of our yeah. total power. Well, what is, what's this going to do to the economy? Well, it's going to wreck the economy. I mean, the problem here is that, you know, we are going to net zero, even though there's no there there. I mean, we are dismantling our grid. I mean, we saw what happened last weekend. You know, with the extreme cold weather, the grid just mm -hmm. doesn't work. We had rolling blackouts. Now, the other part of my Wall Street Journal article was there's another report by the North American Electrical Reliability Council, which is in charge of – it's sort of a semi-regulatory body that worries about the grid. And they say that, look, we're burdening the grid with more, electric, more electrification needs like EVs. And then we're also dismantling the baseload power we need, you know, the gas plants, the coal plants. And that's, there's just disaster headed, you know, our way. Of course, we saw it last weekend. And, you know, in, in, during the summer, uh, the Midwest was on a constant threat of, of rolling blackouts. California, especially California, you know, they're, they're banning the internal combustion engine in vehicles in the 2030s. And they're going to load up the grid with all these EVs. How's it going to work? Because they're also taking the grid apart. So the point is, right, taking the grid apart, number one, and number two, adding all these mandates uh, to an electrical supply, which is already running short. Right. And will, right, will be even shorter and thinner in the future right. if this nonsense continues. I don't get it. What's the logic here? Well, there is no logic. And I think it's incumbent upon the Republicans when they take over the House that they start hearings on this. They should bring up the utilities, the grid operators, the public service commissions, the regulators, have them explain uh, how they are going to get to net zero or stop talking about it because it's just a fantasy. The utility industry says it's not possible. Why are we talking about it? Why are we you know, trying to gear our economy around it? It's not possible. So this North American Electric Reliability Corp, 
which as you say, this is the government certified uh, standard setting group. They're saying fossil fuel plants are being dismantled uh, everywhere, putting the country at risk of grid failure and blackouts. Now, again, um, why don't people get this? I mean, it's, <laughs> it's very clear. Uh, these are the experts. Yeah. And, and, you know, the other point, uh, Steve Malloy, I, you know, I talked to Mark Mills of the Manhattan Institute and um, Steve Coonan, who was the head energy right. scientist years ago. You can't it, even this. Let's talk a bit battery powered stuff. We don't have the resources yet, uh, you know, nickel and so forth that goes into making batteries. But if you mine for them, and, and the greenies won't let us mine for these resources, but if you did, these are carbon intensive activities. I mean, you can't have it both ways. No, you can't. And, you know, one part, uh, one important aspect of that every report is that, you know, in, in saying that net zero is impossible, they didn't even look at the supply chain considerations. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, I mean, not only are they, so we're not allowed to mine in the U.S. for any of these minerals. So where do we, where does most of this stuff come from? Well, it comes from uh, communist China. China mm-hmm. Communist China is responsible for processing 85% of the rare earths, which go into uh, wind turbines, solar technology, uh, EVs, battery technology. I mean, we are, we are you know, in, in becoming greener, quote unquote, we are just making ourselves more dependent on our, you know, number one geopolitical rival, communist China. Which is another terrific idea. Right. The Bidens, very strong. Um, I, the other thing is, um, why not let a thousand flowers bloom? In other words, one thing, Bjorn Lomborg is so good on this when he talks about, you know, letting the free market technologies work. So we will um, decarbonize, but natural gas is cleaner and cleaner. You know, let's add to that nuclear, but who knows what inventions we'll make, right? I mean, we didn't know fracking was going to be as important as it has been. Why not just let the private markets develop technologies to make everything cleaner? We already have the cleanest air and water of any of the large countries around the world, right? We're the cleanest. We've had the biggest drop of carbon emissions of any of the large countries around the world. Why is that, Steve Malloy? Because the technology advances. Well, we, you know, we have very powerful lobbies in the United States that, for different reasons, are pushing, um, you know, this, this green agenda on us. You know, we've got the, the lefty enviros. Uh, they've got a political agenda. And, you know, we've also empowered now the wind and solar and EV, you know, car industries. Mm. And, you know, they want more subsidies, uh, which, you know, come a lot sooner than technology advancements. So, um, and, and, and they're, you know, uh, these rent seekers, Larry, are, are purchasing more and more politicians on both sides of, you know, uh, the spectrum. And uh, we're, we're really, we, we have little chance of stopping this at this rate. Right. The the inflation, the so-called misnamed Inflation Reduction Act, I think, put in four or five hundred billion dollars worth of tax credits, which is just a form of government spending through the tax code. Right. Well, so that's what you're. Yeah, that's the rent yeah. seeking. Yeah. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, most people don't realize this, that, you know, this is basically walking around money for Democrats now. <laughs> uh, what, and, who, and who's in charge of it? John Podesta. 
What does oh, he know about? That's right. What does he know about the grid or anything else? <laughs> I've known John Podesta over forty years. That's I forgot about John Podesta. Yeah. Right. It's Barack walking Obama's around money, hundreds Jesus. of billions. <laughs> you don't think that's aimed at the election, do you? Yeah. Yeah, that's terrific stuff. So, what's the next step with all this? Why doesn't the GOP start, you know, promoting this? Um, you need a you need a permitting bill. Uh, I mean, I don't want to loot the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. French Hill, Congressman French Hill was just on talking about that. But it seems to me, if you stop looting Spro, you should really accompany that yeah. with a permitting reform bill that will, you know, let us get the oil and gas that we need. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's unfortunate. Republicans really have, uh, you know, I've been working on these issues for 32 years, and Republicans have spent most of that time running away from environment and energy issues, when I think they really should be very strong, especially now. So I'm hoping that, you know, when the Republican Congress comes in, they start looking at net zero, they start having hearings, you know, and, and we need to produce more energy. Mm. Um, you know, we need to, you know, keep the Strategic Petroleum Reserve for emergencies only, not just to try to lower gas prices temporarily for, you know, elections. Um, there's a lot of things they could be doing, and I hope they'll take the opportunity because it's very important to stop this now. I mean, it, 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 the problem is just getting worse. You know, these uh, the wind, solar, the rent seekers, they're becoming more powerful, more influential, and they don't care what's going to happen in 10 years or 20 years or what happened last weekend. Um, you know, they just they're looking at the subsidy. Even Elon Musk has said, I mean, talk, you know, he's going to get a lot of these subsidies for Tesla. But even Elon has said, let's open the spigots for oil and gas. Yeah. He said, let's be pragmatic about this, which yeah. is what we should do. Do both sides at the same time. Well, look, you know, we need to be making our economy stronger, Larry. Right. We have a very serious geopolitical rival whose number one concern is becoming the lone global superpower as soon as they can. And here we are, we're destroying our own electrical grid. Mm -hmm. uh, we're greening the military. What, what good could come from that? None of this makes any sense. We need adults in Washington. Hopefully we'll get some. Yeah, these new stealth bombers, which are fabulous, um, they want to power them with batteries. <laughs> Honestly, they, they want a green stealth bomber. <laughs> it's like the Wright brothers. Oh, my God. Yeah. Steve Malloy, thanks for coming on. All Happy right, New Year, buddy. Great piece Happy in the New Wall Year. Street Journal. Folks, we're going to take a quick break. On the other side, uh, congressional budget expert, uh, House member Jason Smith in Missouri is going to tell us what his agenda is and where the Republicans are going to go. I'm Kudlow. Happy New Year. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, everybody. I bring in uh, Congressman Jason Smith, Republican from Missouri, ranking Republican on the Budget Committee. First of all, Jason, happy, happy New Year. Happy New Year, Larry. It's great to be with you, sir. Yeah, I appreciate you doing this very, very much, uh, New Year's Eve. Not everyone wants to do it, but you wrote a great op-ed piece. Uh, I saw it in the Daily uh, Caller. Dems put America on a dangerous path. Now House Republicans have to turn it around. So I don't know what the total is, but the COVID relief bill is a couple trillion dollars. The uh, misnamed Inflation Reduction Act, $750 billion, omnibus $1.7 billion. Then you got your so-called CHIPS bill. What was that? Uh, $280 billion. Then there was the infrastructure bill. Uh, what was that? $1.1 trillion. That's a lot of money. That's, uh, I don't know, it's over $4 trillion dollars. 
question is, can you stop this stuff now? Can you just put your foot down and put an end to it, Jason? Larry, we'll definitely be able to make an impact. Um, as you just recited all those numbers, it, it's just good to remind the listener that when the Democrats started this Congress with the one-party Democrat control, where they controlled the White House, the House, and the Senate, the first major piece of legislation they passed was a $2 trillion COVID spending package that rewarded all their wealthy environmentalists, their political friends, their allies, their donors. And the last piece of legislation that they finished this Congress of one-party Democrat, Democrat rule was another $2 trillion spending bill. In the last 23 months that they've had one-party rule, they've increased spending over the next year by over the next 10 years by 10 trillion dollars hmm. increase that that is more than all the spending that our country has done in its first 196 years of existence and people wonder why inflation has gone up 14.3 percent since joe biden the oath of office or real wages have declined 3.8 percent since joe biden's taken office but when when Kevin McCarthy becomes speaker on January 3rd and Republicans take over, we can be the, the brakes to all of this reckless spending. It, it is so unfortunate that they were able to push through this $2 trillion omnibus spending bill as their last legislative act, action. But from the next two years moving forward, they have to go through a Republican-controlled House of Representatives. And there's a lot of big fights ahead. There's future spending fights. But also, Larry, the debt limit increase is coming up, and Republicans in the House are going to use every tool in the toolbox to help control these economic crises that we're facing, whether it's the inflation crisis, the border crisis, or the energy crisis that you were just talking about whenever I came on. Yeah, no, that's a good point, and you should use uh, all the tools. You know, a couple of things you say in this op-ed that's uh, very important. First of all, uh, there were spending caps. Now, let me get this right, because I don't think I even knew this. Um, for the last 10 years, until Biden took office, Congress had capped annual discretionary spending increases by an average of 2% per year. That law was the outcome of a bipartisan negotiation over increasing the nation's debt. Since that law's expiration, spending has increased by a combined 16% over the last two years. I didn't know about this 2% cap. Uh, is that the cap that, you know, uh, if you violate the cap, you're supposed to have an across-the-board automatic spending cut? Is that what you're referring to? That's exactly right. This was passed in 2011 when right. the Republicans took control of 2010. It was in August of 2011. It was the budget caps agreement. That was a 10-year agreement. And over that 10 years, from 2011 to 2021, when it expired, the increase of discretionary spending averaged 2% a year. That ca Those caps fell off in 2021. The first year, the Democrats raised uh, discretionary spending 7%. This, this current package that was just signed into law this past week raised it 9%. So you're looking at 16% increase with no budget cap. And I want to remind everyone that that 10-year budget caps agreement was passed linked together with an increase of the debt limit. And it was also in the same situation that we're entering into. A Democrat controlled the White House. A Demo Democrats controlled the Senate. 
but the Republicans just won the House of Representatives. Let's hope history can repeat itself. So the other thing that's in here that's so interesting, um, you talk about Pedro, uh, which, uh, which goes along. Now, every increase in spending has to be accompanied by a decrease in spending. Is, is PAYGO part of this 2011 deal, Jason, or is this a separate thing? PAYGO was a separate thing, but it was also with a debt limit increase. Um, of course, uh, th that it has been it has been historical to use debt limits to help control reckless spending, and that's why I say when we're looking at the debt limit this coming um, coming year, that looks like it will expire sometime in midsummer that we need to use every tool in the toolbox. But we need to not only look at um, the inflation crisis, the reckless spending, but we need to look at the energy crisis. We need to look at the border crisis and figure out every tool that we can to help deliver for working class Americans. Um, Jason Smith, how fast can you go after the 80 billion for the uh, whatever it is, 170,000 new IRS agents? How fast can you go after that? I mean, it was so laughable to hear some of the the senators. In fact, it was a Republican senator that said, we have a conservative win out of this $2 trillion spending bill because we cut the IRS $275 million <laughs> when they're currently funded at over $12 billion on a yearly appropriation. And that $80 billion was just given to them three months prior in the Fake Inflation Reduction Act. That $80 billion, Larry, that was passed in the Fake Inflation Reduction Act was all mandatory spending. So that's not even discretionary. So we have to do use every tool to try to go after it. The one tool that you can use is zero out the IRS and their yearly spending. Zero them out. That's 12 to $13 billion that they would have to suck through on the other $80 billion. And when can that? Uh, when when can you go after that? You have to wait until the next budget. Of course, what they just did they they passed funding now until the end of September 30th. But mm -hmm. we're going to have to do the appropriations pr process starting when we return, and it needs to be passed before the end of September 30th for the next fiscal year. That's where you need to use the power of the person, every tool to go after. But I can tell you, uh, Kevin McCarthy has said from day one. The first resolution that will be on the floor is a bill that rescinds that $80 billion. But, you know, Washington's so broken, Larry. You have, like, the Congressional Budget Office that will come out with a score saying that if you repeal that $80 billion, it's going to cost the country $120 billion because oh. of extra audits that they could, they could increase. Where in the world can you eliminate $80 billion of spending that just started three months ago and it's going to cost you 120 billion that's washington numbers that's how broken the budgeting process is and that's what the congressional budget office will end up scoring with 600 with 600 dollar audits <laughs> 600 dollar audits i love that well they're gonna they're gonna be going after your venmos your your paypal <laughs> accounts everything else it's all about having more control and command over the lives of all Americans. And it's not the wealthy Americans. It's the Americans that's barely getting by the 60% of us that are living paycheck to paycheck. No, I know. Uh, you know, you sell a $600 used couch. I mean, you're going to be audited. It's crazy stuff. You know, Jason Smith, that's the tragedy of the omnibus bill is it, it makes you wait. 
you could, if they had done the CR like they should have done the Republican senators, you could have gone after it right away. I mean, that's really the tragedy of this whole story, or one of the tragedies anyway. That's absolutely the case, and we could have had a much, much better negotiation lever where the Republicans control one chamber, you could put your riders and restrictions on those out-of-control policies that this administration pushing, whether it's their war on U.S. energy, whether it's not paying attention to the laws to enforce the southern border, mm. you name it. There's so many opportunities that were missed because a few retiring senators decided to get their special projects through. All right. Jason Smith, Congressman, terrific stuff. Very, very helpful. Happy New Year, my friend. All best coming up. Folks, we're going to take Happy a break. Year, Larry. And on the other side of the break, we're going to do some stock market work. It was not a good year for stocks. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Happy New Year to everybody. Thank you for listening on New Year's Eve. And by the way, resuming on Tuesday. I've had a little bit of a break myself. Resuming on Tuesday, Fox Business. The name of the show is Kudlow, 4 to 5 p.m., Mondays through Fridays. If you can't make us at four, please send a text message to your favorite nine-year-old who will teach you how to DVR the show. It's not that hard. And um, right here, you can live stream us on the internet, LarryCudlowShow.com, LarryCudlowShow.com, all across the country, around the world, throughout the solar system, and let's not forget the Milky Way. We're going to talk about stocks. All the headlines today were stock markets since 2008. Last week, the markets didn't do much last week. The Dow's off 57 points, NAS off 31, S&P off 5. Year to date, I guess the big story is almost 20% bear, S&P 500 down 19.4, NASDAQ off 33.1%. So those are tough numbers. The Dow only 8.8%. The Russell 2000 small caps off 21.6%, so it wasn't a good year. Interest rates, of course, surged. On balance, the key rate for the Fed went from 0 to 4.5%. I remember when inflation was not here or then it was transitory. Oops, 0 to 4.5%. How about that for forecasting uh, mistakes? Anyway, let's talk about the whole story. We have Jack Berusian. Chairman of the Global Smart Commodity Fund. We have Jim Urio, Director of TJM Institutional Services, Chicago's leading restaurateur. First of all, of my two friends, Happy New Year to both of you. Thank you for coming on on New Year's Eve, gentlemen. Thank you as well, Larry. Thanks for all you do. Thank you, Larry. All right. So, start with uh, Jim Urio, the worst year since 2008. It wasn't so bad, though. I mean, you know, a lot of people thought it was going to be a whole lot worse. At different points in the year, 
you know, the year to date was down a lot more on the S&P. Um, so what do you make of it? What, what happens here going forward? I think there's a lot of victories that can be claimed from 2022. When you're, I mean, you take mortgage rates from 2.8% to 7% in the span of about eight months, and then just broaden that out to every other industry, rates going up so quickly. The fact that things didn't fall apart yet, I guess I'll say, um, I think is pretty encouraging. The fact that we're only down 20% is pretty encouraging. And here's what's really encouraging to me is that the first part of this correction slash bear market has the element of overpositioning and lack of respect for risk when it begins a year ago. That's that's certainly gone now. So now it's just the second part of it, if we continue lower, which I don't think we will, would be about multiple um, compressions and a long uh, drawn out recession, which is certainly possible. And I think there could be another quick leg down in the first couple months here. But I think the worst is over. And I think by also this is going to make you mad, I know, but I also think the Fed pivots in about a month or two and starts, I mean, talking about no more rate hikes and the market's going to take that to mean something there's going to be easing at some point in time in the future. That's what I believe, too. But the labor market's got to fall apart first before that happens. Jack Bruggen, the pivot, the Urio pivot, we're going to call it, uh, a triumph of hope over experience. Uh, well, first of all, Happy New Year to you, and Happy New Year to my good friend Jim. Who, who by the way, you know, from the floor of the exchange, we, we I, 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 I love Jim. He's probably one of the sharpest guys uh, ever to come off of the floor of the CME. Uh, just so you know, thank uh, you, brother. He's wrong about this. He's wrong about this, though. How about that, Jim? All right, and, and I'll tell you why. I, I don't think the Fed is going to pivot. I don't think they're in that state of mind. Uh, they have they have set a course. Uh, they are they are looking firmly at uh, you know what is a a four and a half five percent rate that they are going to adjust to, but more importantly they're late, and and that's the real issue. And I think we're all missing it. You know, I came on a year ago, Larry, and I talked about the headwinds that we were going to face, and the market was going to was going to probably be in trouble. And sure enough, we saw it in trouble. I don't think it's done being in trouble yet. I think there are a lot of headwinds that we are still looking at. More importantly, what we're looking at right now is something that is, is a scenario which could be very dangerous. It could be leading to more of a, of a 1990s Japan scenario, and that's really my concern. When you look at some of these commodities, the, the stuff that, that Jimmy and I grew up with, they're getting hit hard. Lumber is down 66%. Right, oats are down 46 percent. Copper is down 15 percent. These are not indications of inflation any longer. These are now disinflationary pressure that's coming into the marketplace at a time where the Fed is tightening. So what is happening in my mind is that the market weakness, which started by the Fed action and tightening, is now reacting to other things. It's acting to reckless fiscal policy, mm -hmm. and if we don't start to adjust that the market could be in big trouble in 23. Yeah, you know, budget policy has got to sober up. I think that's an important point. I, there's some interesting things here, gentlemen. Um, I'm looking at the Fed's measure. They look at the PCE deflator, uh, and they look at the core, so the personal consumption expenditures deflator. Anyway, listen to this. Co the core PCE deflator, the last three months, 3.3% annually, the last six months, 4% annually, and the last 12 months, 47 annually. Now, the Fed's target is two, and it's all above two, but the trend is coming down. 
when the three month is less than the six month, less than the 12 month. One other point, um, I know there's a lot of recession forecasts and there are reasons to have that forecast. But I will say with the revisions, third quarter GDP was up 3.2% annually. And right now the Atlanta Fed's GDP now tracker for Q4, which is just completed, is 37 So the second half of the year, Jim Urio, saw stronger growth than expected and actually lower inflation than expected. I just find that interesting. I do, too. And I think it's it's amazing. And I think that it is trending lower in um, the PC, and it's not trending as lower as fast as they want. But I am, to your point, wildly impressed with how the economy is held up now. Yeah. That being said, they only began tightening in March, and we every one of us knows that there's a significant lag effect to um, rates when, you know, particularly rates that have to be rolled over and you get rid of your, you know, 2% and roll into your 8%. Um, so the, the effect of the rate hikes should be beginning in earnest now, which is interesting. You mentioned just ridiculous fiscal policy that like, it's almost like it's such a head scratcher. It drives me nuts. And we're just now seeing the effects of the infrastructure bill. They're just starting to spend the effects of the inflation reduction act, which was highly inflationary and ridiculously ironically named. And they're kicked. And then the $1.3 trillion omnibus spending bill. So these things, it's like this huge war that's going on between a fed that wants to get rid of inflation and a government that wants to, the, to just keep stoking inflation, I guess. No. But to your point, yeah, it's pretty impressive. But the labor market is the key. And if we, you look at the conflicting NFP versus the household survey of the last couple months, when that come to Jesus moment happens, I think they, uh, that's when they go to neutral. Well, on the negative side, I guess to your point about the pivot, um, the index of leading indicators has been plunging, um, I don't know, nine or 10 straight months. The M2 money supply has plunged from like plus 30 to zero in the last year, more or less, uh, last 18 months perhaps. And then the yield curve is very deeply inverted. So we've got a three-month bill uh, at 434 and a 10-year note at 387. Interest rates, by the way, did go up a lot this week. But the old New York Fed model uh, Jack Perusian is predicting a recession sometime in the next year because of that. And then, as I said, you got your plunging money supply and your plunging leading indicators. So that's kind of a counter. I mean, it's like the current economy looks looks okay, but the future economy doesn't. Well, well, remember these are the indicators that react immediately to, to the Fed's actions. Uh, so as opposed to, to the to the general economy, to the GDP, which probably takes, as Jimmy was just saying, six to eight months before we start to see the full effects. Mm -hmm. But I, I think what we're going to start experiencing over the course of these next maybe two or three months is something that we've already begun to hear, and that is cuts on earnings, uh, misses, and more importantly, more than likely a multiple contraction which within the market itself. You know, there are people that are out there that, are, that were calling for 240, 250. Uh, 
uh, in earnings for the S&P for 2023. Those have been slashed down to 2215. My number is now 200. Now, let, let's say, for example, for argument's sake, I'm 100% correct. If that's the case, then the market is too rich. It, mm-hmm. It's it's sitting at, at a multiple that's way too high, and it's got to get back down to 3200 or 3000 before it becomes digestible again. Now, again, this is all just simple math that I'm looking at. These are headwinds. We are not going to fight the Fed. We didn't fight the Fed on the way up, nor should we fight the Fed on the way down. Until that pivot is clear, until I see the whites of their eyes, until Jim is absolutely right and I see them actually make that change, we have to assume that the pressure is going to stay on the neck of the market. And that's exactly where it's at right now. Well, profits are the mother's milk of stocks, although Jim Urio doesn't agree with that. (laughs) So, <laughs> just, had, just had to slip that in. For those uh, listening, we've been arguing about this for 10 years at least, Larry. And I, I think the Fed is the mother's milk of stocks. But anyway, but, sorry but to interrupt. But it is possible, uh, you know, if the Fed does pivot and holds rates steady or, or starts dropping rates, that could be construed, Jim Urio, as a negative for the stock market because – it would suggest that the economy is going down and that profits are going down. In other words, not always so bullish when the Fed starts cutting rates. No, and, and I agree, and there is going to be a time when the market interprets that as all is lost. But the question is, is it going to be this time? Do they have the ability to kick the can down the road before the, the economy has really fully healed itself, as they've done several times in the past? I mean, you know, when Carl Icahn came into your administration and he talked about the fact that we are so highly overregulated in the corporate sector that we need you know, such a long time. The, the Fed has been enabling for so long by keeping rates inorganically low and allowing just bad policy to be everywhere. So if we can if, – if the longer they can go with keeping rates higher, the more I think they will be able to turn – and, and boost the market higher. And so the question becomes, is a year long enough? Does it have to be a year and a half? And I think it could be long enough, and I don't think this is going to be the time that the market says, oh, cheap money, that must be an indicator that things are going to hell. we got to sell. I think it'll be the opposite. Well, it's interesting. If you look at a longer-term perspective, we got to take a break, but just this last thought. A longer-term perspective, um, a 4 4.5% 4. Fed funds rate is okay. It's no big deal. I mean, we've, you know, we could have bull markets with that. We could have economic recovery with that if we had better supply-side fiscal policy. I mean, maybe they, you know, they finally ended this era of ultra-cheap money, which really began uh, with uh, Janet Yellen and Ben Bernanke in the 2000s. I mean, maybe maybe it's okay. Actually, it began with Greenspan and then Bernanke and then Yellen. It's not such a bad thing that they leveled the funds right off. And maybe the money supply would start rising again. Uh, just a thought. Um, I don't want to be so bearish on New Year's Eve. Anyway, we will uh, take a uh, very quick break. We're talking to Jim Urio, and we're talking to Jack Berusian. We're going to get your predictions for next year. And I want to know how the Chicago restaurants are doing. I'm Kudlow. New Year's Eve. Berusian, Urio. We'll be right back. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're here with two very famous people in the financial world. One is Jim Erio, 
Director of TJM Institutional Services. The other is Jack Berusian, Chairman of the Global Smart Commodity Group. Gentlemen, welcome back. Um, start with Jim Urio. What's your outlook for for the new year? What's what are you thinking here? Economy, stocks, interest rates too. Yeah, I think interest rates level off and then toward the end of the year begin to uh, come back down again. The, right now, the Fed funds curve is pricing in two more 25 base point hikes and then an ease by the end of the year. I'm going with that assessment. I think at the beginning of the year, energy is going to continue doing well. One thing I really liked about energy is that the names start even in October when oil started to go lower, the, the big names like Exxon started moving higher, even though you know the correlation is usually really tight. So I like that. Toward the end of the year, I'll like um, tech. But more than anything else, anyone who's heard any of my speeches over the last three three months, copper is and the metals market are what I'm looking at the most, and that's where I'm positioned the heaviest right now. Copper was suffering from you know, the, the rising dollar and China, and as China comes out of this, I know right now that it's a little bit dicey as they open back up, but I think copper could do really well in the next few years. Jimmy, why is um, why is the dollar soft? It's been soft now for several months. I think the DXY got us, I don't know, where did it go? 112? Yep. Uh, and uh, I have it at uh, 103 and a half. Why is the dollar so soft? So, so I trace it back to that moment in the U.K. when everything looked like it was going to hit the fan and then turned around. And I think market positioning and all the currency pairs were so overweighted to the dollar. And mm. as some of those other main ones started to realize that inflation was more their problem than the pending recession because of the Ukraine conflict, and those currencies started to rally hard, then market positioning kicks in and people have to sell it off. So that's when I think fueled it. And I think the dollar looks weak as long as it stays below that 105 level. Yeah, you know, Jack, uh, the yen came, let's see, no, the euro came back to 107. I think it, it got under a buck for a while. And the British pound, 121. I think that got down to 112, if my memory serves me. Uh, what's your outlook on the dollar? Well, you know what? You're right. It did get under a, a buck in the euro. In fact, I was on the Normandy beaches, and it was 99 cents to the dollar, and right. I, I couldn't believe it at the time. Hmm. Uh, and that was in September. Uh, but uh, but I feel as if the, the, the dollar's probably got a little bit more stability to it than maybe Jim does. And the reason for that is because I don't think the Fed is done yet. Uh, I think the Fed has probably got a few more rate hikes still left in them. I know the market is pricing out a, a flattening uh, of, of the Fed expectations over the course of the next few months. But it, it seems to me, and, and you know, the three of us uh, you know, have been long enough have been around long enough to, to, to notice when we start to see the bond vigilantes and the equity vigilantes come back to the marketplace. With the Fed out of the picture, with them no longer manipulating the market, look for what, what we used to call these bond vigilantes to come back in. Mm -hmm. That seems to be taking the place. Now, having said that, I don't want to end on a sour note here. I do think we are going to set a generational low within these next six months in the equity markets. Mm. Uh, it's going to be an inflection point, and, and that is the low that we probably want to buy for the long term. Um, and, and as far as uh, commodities go, they're obviously very volatile, but I think Jim's right. I think you want to stick with some of the metals. You know, the non-performance in gold for the year tells us something. Uh, the more than likely, that's going to react to the upside. Copper, of course, has been suppressed. Uh, and look for palladium. Look for some of these other precious metals to really run along with them. Gold's been pretty steady now for quite some time, around 
it's been could, it's been a, it's could, been dead it's been dead stay. money though if you think about it for the year, Larry. Uh, in a year where where everything else got hit, and if I were to say to you in the beginning of the year that you know the the ten year note was going to be down fourteen percent and the the S and P was going to be down twenty percent, you and I would both think that gold would probably have a great stellar year, being up ten maybe twenty percent. It's flat. But uh, sideways so, so, was a great year, though. Dead money was great in 2022. If you came out with the same amount you had, right? <laughs> You're well, right. It's, it's scary when you think of dead money as being a good trade. <laughs> Inflation adjusted, not so great. But I think yeah. gold, gold is also confirming the decline of inflation. Yeah, I, I agree with that, too. And, and I think that we're seeing that action, especially in some of these commodities that have gotten hit uh, very, very hard. Uh, you know, I mean, to look at lumber. Lumber tells the story, especially for housing. That, that, that market is now in depression. You know, housing's in very bad shape. So you're, you're right. You're dead right about that. Um, Jim Murio, does the 10-year get back to 4%? It's at 387. And, and actually, why did interest rates go up so much this past week anyway? Again, and I hate to have this be my stock answer, too, but I think it's as much a market positioning thing as everything. When everyone expects things to go in a certain way, then all of a sudden we take off some positions, particularly some year-end positions. So I don't think there's much to take out of it. As far as 10-year going back above 4%, I don't think so. Again, the, the thing that Jack and I have disagreed on, and you and I as well, is just the timing of the Fed when they stop doing it. I say in the first quarter, Jack, I think, is saying in maybe three quarters from now. Is that, is that accurate, Jack? That's right. Yeah, Absolutely. so that, we're yeah. talking about the same thing the whole time. But that's why, no, I don't think the tenure, because I think the market is going to start to smell that rates aren't going that much higher. And do you think stocks hit a generational low? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure, sure I'd say that. I do think when the Fed starts to pivot, I'm going to start buying NASDAQ pretty hard. Mm. And I, I don't know, you know, I know in the metals market, I said for the year, a couple year play, but uh, I don't know if I can say that in stocks yet. I mean, it's a contrary. If, if, if you're a contrarian, if one is a contrarian, uh, you want to buy the hell out of the stock market. <laughs> Damn straight. No, wait, can I say that on your radio show? I'm sorry about that. But, yes, yeah. that's the contrarian play I mean, right now. Really? I like the contrarian play. Yeah, right. I mean, it's an interesting point. Um, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to tell you who, but I was at a dinner, I guess about two weeks ago, and an extremely savvy investor, I mean, extremely savvy, with a great track record, came up to me and it was a black tie event, and he's pulling my lapels of my dinner jacket and telling me that the stock market is the greatest buy ever. I mean, it's fascinating. Kind of blew me away. The guy was very smart. Anyway, gentlemen, the music comes. Have a very happy, happy new year, Jack Berusian and Jim Murio. Happy new year, Larry. Thanks for being so you helpful too, to us. Thank you, guys. Folks, we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to talk money and politics with Liz Peek and Steve Moore. I'm Cudlow. Please stay with us. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Happy New Year. Happy New Year's Eve. Let's talk some money and politics with Liz Peek, Fox News contributor and syndicated columnist, and Steve Moore from FreedomWorks and Committee to Unleash Prosperity and the book Godzilla. Uh, welcome, kids. Thank you for doing this. Happy New Year. Happy New Year's Eve. Good. Steve there? Do we have Steve? Steve Moore, Steve Moore. All right. 
we'll try to find Steve Moore. Um, Liz Peak, my first question. Uh, is I'm here. Uh, there you go. Happy New Year. Good. Stay with us. <laughs> Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, hang on for a while. Uh, kids, Hello. I want to start with a simple question. Who is the person of the year? Liz Peak, you first. <laughs> okay, well, I have to say Ron DeSantis. Uh, certainly, if you're a Republican, he's the person of the year because he has put forward uh, an amazing political record in a pretty short period of time, has kind of zoomed up in terms of popularity and people knowing about Ron DeSantis. He's managed his state brilliantly. You know, at, at the end of the day, there is a thing called accountability. And if you uh, run a state which is ranking number one in all kinds of positive categories like in migration and best state for businesses and best taxation and all the rest, uh, you know, you got to really applaud this guy. And I do. I think he's doing a wonderful job. Um, and I think he is also doing something the Republican Party needs desperately, which is to put forward a possible 24 candidate who embraces the policies we all liked that Donald Trump delivered, but that Donald Trump may not be the best person uh, to to run on uh, because he may not win the next election. And I think boy, oh boy, do we need to start winning some elections. So he's my candidate. By the way, Liz, um, running at the top of uh, the Fox Business uh, website, uh, they rank, Forbes magazine ranks Tampa as the best city in Florida. Tampa. (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting. Thought I'd put that one in. Thank heavens it wasn't Palm Beach. Um, Steve Moore, person of the year. Well, I was going to say Larry Kudlow for being number one business show. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but I, I, Thank but I, you. Somebody just eked you out. You know who that is? Aaron, Aaron Judge. Oh, oh Aaron Judge. Run. Come on. Come on. So I know this isn't a sports show, but that's a pretty amazing feat. Um, if I can't go with the sports figure, and if I can't go with you, I would probably have to say Elon Musk. I know. I think he was Time Magazine Man of the Year last year. But, my God, what he's done this year has been pretty amazing as well. And, and know, really exposing what's going on with our government, which is really scary. Elon Musk is my choice. He's my choice. Yeah. Guy spent $44 billion for free speech and uh, opened up the thicket of what the FBI was doing with misinformation and collusion and maybe the CIA. God knows where this story is going to lead. But I got to give yeah. it to Elon Musk. I mean, the guy's just incredible. But my second question is, who's the dummy of the year, Liz Peake? The absolute <laughs> dummy of the year. <laughs> okay, well, you know, this is I, a tough I put one. out a piece, Five Biggest Winners and Losers uh, on Fox today. And I have to say, Tom Brady was in, you know, the top category as loser. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's not a sports show. But you got to say, here is the greatest of all time who has hung around too long, who did this sort of in and out of whether – you know, very uh, Shakespearean drama about retirement, no drama, uh, not retiring, uh, loses his wife. I mean, the whole thing, I think, is kind of minor league tragic. Uh, and by the way, the Buccaneers may make the playoffs only because they're uh, part of the draw is so terrible. But, you know, they haven't even had a winning record. Imagine this first time in 22 seasons, uh, Tom Brady may have a losing record. So, I feel sorry for him, honestly, but but he's kind of brought this on himself, and I feel bad about that. And by the way, of course, I think Joe Biden is the biggest dummy of the year, <laughs> but um, I'm trying to be a little more creative than that, a little more original. Steve Moore, dummy of the year. 
So I've got co-dummies of the year. I'm going to have to go with Gavin Newsom for telling everyone they have to drive <laughs> electric vehicles and then saying, oops, we don't have the charging stations. We don't have enough electricity yeah. for electric vehicles. That was pretty dopey. Uh, and then, you know, you got to go with Pete Buttigieg. I mean, the guy was in charge of the supply chain problem, and all we've had all this year is supply chain problems. <laughs> and it's amazing that those are the two front runners for the Democratic nomination for 2024. What a sorry party. Jeez, Buttigieg. Wait, wait a minute, Steve. You forgot Kamala Harris. I mean, uh, you got to put her right I up there with Pete Buttigieg, what? right? The two most likely successors to Joe Biden, should he choose not to wit- run, Pete Buttigieg, who can't drive a car, and Kamala Harris, who honestly has done what? I mean, the border is her, the border's her baby. It's a headline every day. Nothing is being done. It's, I mean, it's pretty a staggering thing, Wait, right? She whines Liz, she, and she whines she about her portfolio. Has she huh? actually been to the border yet? No. <laughs> No, because she hasn't been to Europe. Oh, wait, she did go to Europe. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, Buttigieg has done a great job with the uh, airline problem with Southwest <laughs> Airlines. He's just all over it, right? He's By the way, Liz. my luggage for me. As a side effect, when when is the board of Southwest going to fire the CEO? Well, yeah. I, I mean, I mean really. you, got, you know, I think – this is a disaster that has been in the making and unfolding yeah. for months, if not yeah. years. Yeah. And look, I, I think this is a perfect example, and I'm sure it'll be a Harvard Business School case study of short-term gains at the expense of long-term survivability. And right. it really is a, a case study of that, right? You kind of, you know, I, I think also you cut back on technology, you cut back on investment, it boosts your bottom line for a while. And then you get completely hammered. Um, But I think, Larry, honestly, it raises the visibility of technology investment generally by businesses because uh, I've seen – and I'm party to – aware of, let's say, what banks spend and financial Mm -hmm. institutions spend on on tech. Mm -hmm. It is staggering, staggering Mm -hmm. uh, billions of dollars. And so are airlines and so are – by the way, uh, you know, communications companies and so forth. Tech is huge, and it may be out of fashion right now to invest in it. Stocks may be getting clobbered, but boy, it is it is the grease that makes the wheels turn at this point. And you see a company like Southwest, which is underinvested in it, just completely go down the tubes, and that's what happened. By the way, Jeff Peake should be the banker of the year. How about that? <laughs> he is a good banker. Tell, tell Jeff Peake he's the banker of the year. But excluding Joe Biden, and I admit Buttigieg is close, but I got to say John Kerry is the dummy of the year. Yeah. John <laughs> Kerry is it could be the stupidest man in Washington. The whole global warming, mm-hmm. Green New Deal thing is so utterly disastrously catastrophic. He, you know, he's he's pushing this. I don't know behind the scenes. He's the front guy, but what he's done. And I mean, you know, Steve, the, the catastrophe here is what they've done to fossil fuels or what they're trying to do to fossil fuels, what the impact has been on inflation and the middle class and the overall economy. I got to give John Kerry a lot of credit, honestly, the dummy of the year. Yeah, the only thing I would quibble with is that this really is is a religious movement that has really taken over the entire Democratic Party. I mean, yeah. I'm just shocked week after week after this complete calamity of these climate change policies which are destroying our energy destroying you know so many of our vital industries 
And nobody on the Democratic Party will speak out at the tomfoolery of this. I mean, the idea that somehow we're going to rescue the planet with windmills is really one of the stupidest ideas in history. (laughs) And yet it's captured the entire look. Maybe global warming is happening. Maybe climate change is happening. But I guarantee you windmills and solar power are not going to save that. By the way, this issue um, that came up when, when you talk about maybe inventions of the year is this idea of this new fusion technology, which is still yeah. several decades away. But that could that could cha- be a total game changer in terms of cheap and abundant energy. And by the way, the left, uh, left was skeptical of this and saying, well, we don't really need it because we have windmills and we have solar yeah. panels. Why do we need that? Well, fusion's been a couple of decades away for 60 years. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> true. But you know, it's so true. Actually, my, my second one would be Jennifer Granholm. Yeah, yeah, what an idiot. Same thing. My third one would be that, what's her name, Deb Halla? What's her name, the Interior Secretary? She's the one yeah. stopping all the permits. Actually, if I had a list of the cabinet here, I'd just go down their list. <laughs> a all. cabinet review in 22 would be a pretty disheartening undertaking, I really, think. Really think of it. Is anybody? Yeah. I mean, think, or let's start with Janet Yellen, who completely oh, missed the whole yeah. problem with inflation and, and basically torpedoed a pretty good academic reputation by becoming a political hack uh, who knows better. I mean, political hacks are all over the place. John Kerry, to your point, you forgot all about the fact that he's still enamored of Iran and a deal right, with Iran, even right. as Iranian drones right. are causing more mischief and mayhem in the world than probably any other single output I mean, John Kerry really is just sort of, as you say, a dummy. And, um, Janet Yellen presumably is not, and yet she has been, I think, an unforgivably bad uh, Treasury right. Secretary. By the way, don't forget John Kerry pushing a global warming deal with, hold your breath, China. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. Right. They're all in on this. Right, all in, absolutely. <laughs> China is going to be a party to global warming and meet <laughs> coal plant building notwithstanding no i mean the cabinet maybe lloyd austin the defense secretary is the least bad in that game yeah maybe i don't know i mean let's check out his role in afghanistan i mean what other big event have we seen from uh the from the pentagon that that's the i think one of the biggest warts on this uh administration to date an unforgivably badly executed and planned withdrawal that led many people dead, including thousands of Afghans, and by the way, turned the country over the Taliban with basically no strings attached. And now we see the devolution of that sad country into a absolutely horrifying situation again. Yeah, yeah that's a good. Those are all good points. Yeah. He's By the be. way, I want to add. Could I have one more dummy of the year? That because we can, if we need to maintain our, our bipartisanship here. Uh, the 23 senators in the Republican Party who voted for the omnibus spending yeah. bill, which was a, it's yeah. it's an economic and even bigger political catastrophe for the Republican Party. I can't tell you, Larry, how absolutely insanely angry the the conservatives are, the Republican donors are. They have really stepped in it on this one. It's going to take a long time for people to forgive them. Steve, is Kevin going to make it on Tuesday? Boy, <laughs> yeah, might have to ask Liz that one. I mean, I think it's very dicey. There's a lot of scuttlebutt now, right, right now about maybe Scalise taking it. So, yeah, yeah. I'd still put it sixty percent that he's going to make it, but it, he still doesn't have the votes. I had French Hill on earlier in the show. Apparently, this morning. 
one of the Freedom Caucus people came out and endorsed Kevin McCarthy. Who? I can't remember. A senior guy, though, a big deal guy. Uh, I mean, French is a big McCarthy supporter. I'm a big right. McCarthy supporter, for that matter. But he apparently got um, he got uh, the support. And he's also the idea that you're going to vacate the chair, which That's is really a terrible a, idea. A terrible a terrible idea. idea. Yeah. Um, they Kevin may give a little bit on that. He might give a little bit on that. I don't know. Anyway, all right, this is a good start. We're going to take a quick break, folks. We are talking to Liz Peake and Steve Moore. Happy New Year. I'll be right back. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking New Year's Eve with Liz Peake, Fox News contributor and syndicated columnist, and Steve Moore, of Freedom Works and Committee to Unleash Prosperity and Heritage Foundation, and his uh, recent book, Godzilla. Uh, Steve Moore, you got some beauties here um, in terms of your list of worst policy things this year. Congress mm-hmm. approves funding for 87,000 new IRS agents. Now, question is I was talking to um, uh, Jason Smith about this. Uh, I guess he'll be chairman of the Budget Committee or Ways and Means, something. Um, the trouble is they can't, they want to repeal it. It's going to be their number one thing, I think, but they really can't until the new fiscal year. I mean, we're right. stuck with this, right? I mean, you can't get rid of it. Uh, it's, it's done from the omnibus bill. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, that's, that's one of the, re- one of the many reasons that omnibus bill was catastrophic, although they can look, th- th- that's only a one year funding. So the IRS gets its big funding for, 2023 fiscal 2023 which we're in right now but they can um stop it from happening in the future years and that does have to be a very very top priority i mean we can we just can't allow that to happen i mean we're, they're now investigating uh transactions as little as six hundred dollars you know they want the irs wants to know all about you and so um Look, if they don't get rid of 87,000 IRS agents, I'm going to burn my RNC card and never, never, never be I mean, it, it just has to. It has to happen. Liz, <laughs> burn your RNC card. You should have burned it anyway. <laughs> and um, uh, Liz, Steve's got another one. Biden begs Saudi Arabia and OPEC to increase oil production but won't allow more drilling here at home. Now, obliquely, we talked about this vis-a-vis John Kerry, but really the whole story, it seems to me, about stopping out oil and gas production, no permits, no pipelining, no refineries, uh, blaming the oil companies, threatening a windfall. I mean, that's a package of policies that is the worst thing I've seen in a I, probably it may be the single worst thing I've seen since the 1970s. Yeah, I think what's so disturbing about this is we are already seeing in Europe and in California and probably increasingly in New England the impact of these restrictions on domestic oil and gas production here at home. When I say Europe, they in, they basically embraced a Green New Policy type of arrangement about 10 or 15 years ago, and it has really been a damaging thing for the economies of Germany and other, uh, particularly other manufacturing countries where they really need power. What, what's so disturbing, Larry, I think about this all the time, because unless there have been many things written by myself, by you guys, about 
these policies being wrong and why they're wrong in great detail, why we don't yet have the capability of fast-tracking to uh, mm. renewable fuels, why there are not enough renewables, there are not enough grid changes, there are all these things. But, but the truth is, unless more honest people in the media and in politics really pick up this theme, nobody's going to know if you're ele- nobody's going to know how damaging it is. If your electricity bill goes up in Massachusetts 30 percent, your legislators are going to have a lie to tell you about why that's happening. Look at California. There are all kinds of reasons they give for having the highest electricity costs in the country, but they never mention the fact that it's really their big push for electrification that's causing that. So it's very, I mean, it's very depressing to me that I don't know how you get the word out because as honestly, Steve's right, it is a cult, it is a religion. You know, when people are talked about being climate deniers, that really tells you how cultish it has become. It's cultish now. It's a denier to say, well, what we do doesn't matter. Joe Biden actually inadvertently said that by mistake early in his tenure. It won't matter what we do. And he's right, because China and India and other countries are basically bringing on so much dirty fuel every year that what we do is absolutely a drop in the bucket. And yet they're willing to torch our economy. And they are doing that in order to achieve almost nothing in the way of change. So how can you really break through such massive misinformation, disinformation? You guys talked about Elon Musk lately. I got to tell you, he is the person of the year. It's true, because the only chink in this solid war of disinformation is Twitter now. Mm. And, you know, Mm. please, God, let other chinks appear, whether it's someone buying the New York Times or whatever, because until that happens, I don't know how you really get to these politicians making these terrible mistakes. You know, Steve, a point that Liz made, which has been made by Steve Coonan, who was the former top uh, energy department scientist, and um, Bjorn Lomborg. I mean, those guys know a lot about this stuff. But one of the points here is the Biden's hypocrisy. They've never shown us an alternative structure. In other words, how are windmills and solar and renewables going to take over? What's the blueprint? Mm -hmm. What's the cost? Where are the resources? How long might this take? Never, ever have they shown us an alternative structure or blueprint that would replace fossil fuels. I mean, to me, that is the worst. You know, if you disagree with a policy, you have another policy, but you have to flesh (laughs) out the second policy so you might persuade people. They've not done any of that kind of work. So I'll give you two numbers, 70% and 7%. Do you know what those numbers are, Larry? No, 7% 70, inflation? 70, no, 70% is how much energy we get, how much of our energy comes from fossil fuels. Oh, yes, <laughs> And yes. 7% is how much we get from wind and solar power. So, you know, wind and solar are fringe for forms of energy. They're not scalable to provide more than 25%. Well, maybe we could get up to 20%, maybe. I mean, that would be a stretch. But, Larry, where are we going to get the other 80% from? I mean, come on. Let's be adults here. You can't. It's just not scalable. And if you did, you'd have to pave over like four areas the big, the size of North Dakota 
in windmills and solar. It's not even green. It's the industrialization of the entire landscape. And that's why you're seeing, even in places like Massachusetts and California that are as green as you can get, there's a not-in-my-backyard movement Mm -hmm. going on that is completely um, blocking the building of these kinds of things because people don't want windmills in their backyard, you know. And so uh, it is it is not feasible that, that that we could actually get our energy, enough energy from those two sources. Why are they against nuclear power, Larry? I mean, yeah. if you want if you want an energy source that produces no no um, greenhouse gas emissions, it mm. would be nuclear power. Why are they against natural gas? Natural gas has been the single biggest uh, contributor to the reduction in our pollution levels over the last 25 years, and they're against it. You know, Liz, these wind farms, people don't understand wind farms, how vast they are, how destructive they are to the environment, how costly they are, and by the way, how much carbon will go into creating a wind farm. I mean, they're just not honest about this stuff. No, I've I've seen them. I'm sure you've seen them. in Southern California. There are areas, vast stretches of mountains and so forth, covered with these gigantic edifices, uh, and that's what they are. And yeah, what they're talking, you know, there's great resistance to putting them in the Cape Cod uh, Sound, the Bay Area, because they are unsightly. But also, they kill gazillions of birds. That's not a myth. That is absolutely true. And here we all do handsprings uh, in those coastal regions to protect one plover that's laying eggs and yet they're willing to sacrifice hundreds of thousands of winged yeah. birds. Yeah. It's pretty amazing, really. Happy it's New Year, Liz Peake. Happy New Year, Happy Steve. New Year, Happy, Happy New Year, Larry. Happy New Year, guys. Wonderful. Thanks, everybody. Happy New Year to our listeners. Thanks for hanging in there. I'm Larry Kudlow. Great pleasure. We'll see you next weekend. Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L, on Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024.